This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. What if I told you that there is an entire library of orthodox, careful, influential, important, reformed books that formed and shaped our entire history? Books on reformed theology, reformed piety, practice on biblical interpretation, biblical theology, covenant theology, commentaries on scripture, books on the Christian life, on sanctification, on worship, and on the sacraments. And what if I told you that this great library still exists, but is hidden from most of us because it has not yet been translated into English? Well, if I told you that, I would be telling you the truth. There is such a library, and I call it Classic Reformed Theology. Casey Carmichael and I are editing a series of translations of these sorts of volumes, not all of them, but as many as we can get to in the time that we have and with the resources that we have, and they are appearing in the Classic Reformed Theology series for Reformation Heritage Books. In September of this year, 2019, we expect to see Volume 4 appear. So far, we've published William Ames, A Sketch of the Christian's Catechism, which is a collection of his lectures or sermons on the Heidelberg Catechism, Caspar Olivianus, his Exposition of the Apostles' Creed, Johannes Coxeus, The Doctrine of the Covenant and Testament of God, perhaps one of the most important books in the history of Reformed theology. And our latest volume to appear, as I say, in September, is J.H. Heidegger, The Concise Marrow of Christian Theology, published in 1697. This is a first-ever translation of Heidegger, of any sort, to appear in English. If you haven't heard of Heidegger, you're not alone. That's okay. My colleague and friend, Dr. Ryan Glomsrud, has written the introduction to the volume, and uh, we're going to talk to him about that in just a second. He's Associate Professor of Historical Theology at Westminster Seminary, California. He earned his DPhil in Oxford University. He's a scholar of another famous Swiss theologian, Karl Barth. He's done postdoctoral research at Harvard University and written a number of journal articles and chapters on BART and related figures. He's a ruling elder in Christ Reformed Church in Santee, California, just a little bit southeast here of the seminary. And he joins us now to tell us about this famous Swiss Reformed theologian, Johann Heinrich Heidegger, who lived from 1633 to 1698, and why he matters today and why you should care and why you should think about reading this book. This is part two of my discussion with Dr. Ryan Glomsrud, Associate Professor of Historical Theology at Westminster Seminary, California, about J.H. Heidegger, late 17th century Reformed theology, and the concise marrow of Christian theology. And, you know, it's, I think, important to recognize that Heidegger was in some respects summarizing not even his own larger work, but Jakob uh, Alting of Groningen, another important theologian who's probably even less well-known than Heidegger. And this kind of thing wasn't uncommon. As you know, Amandus Polanus wrote one of the most substantial systems of theology. Yeah, well, that's maybe one of the major parts of that library that I was talking about that has yet to be translated. And he summarized his own volumes, but then his close companion and colleague in Basel, Johannes Wolebius, summarized even Polanus. Yep. 
And so that has been translated in the Beardsley volume, the uh, Reform Dogmatics. In the Reform Dogmatics. Yeah, you can get that still. At the SEM here, we use for one of our courses an abridged version of Beardsley that has the Fuchsius chapter in it and it has Wolabius in it. The Compendium of Theology, which is Wolabius's summary of Polanus. And so now with the Heidegger translation, we can read Heidegger's own thought, of course, but also it really is meant to be a summary of Jakob Olting. So Heidegger really only intended this summary of the summary, the smallest volume to be for the sake and use of beginners. It is meant to be just a primer or stepping stone. And so that's why you have to understand all three volumes together, because the book is filled with internal cross-referencing. Yeah, which we preserved in our edition. So if ever there is an edition of one of the larger volumes, or particularly of the medulla, Right. We'll be able to go back and forth. That's right. And, you know, those kinds of notations alert readers to the fact that Heidegger is working in a very specific context or a very specific genre of writing. He's really thinking and operating the world of reformed humanist pedagogy. He's not engaged in modern philosophies or the philosophical debates swirling around Descartes or Spinoza. That was happening, but that wasn't really Heidegger's interest. He's a teacher of other teachers and so is producing this book to be a kind of study guide, a way into Reformed theology to provide basic categories and definitions so that the reader can advance to the next level. Interesting you say that, and I don't disagree with you at all, but I'm struck by, we read this, we have a you know, obviously a version of it that we use as a class text. And in um, the first locus, section six, he has a section that uh, he titled The Instruction of Reason, which is interesting because that's not necessarily a subsection that you would have seen maybe 100 years or even uh, you know 70 years earlier. But now here towards the end of the 17th century, we're right on the verge of the 18th century. Jonathan Edwards will be involved in a revival movement only uh, you know 22 or 23 years after Heidegger dies. So we're that close to the currents of the 18th century. And he says, hence the instruction Casey here has translated magisterium, and authority of human reason is not the sure rule of distinguishing revelation. And then he quotes 1 Corinthians 2.14 and then explains, for God hides his mysteries from the wise and reveals them to infants. Again, a quotation from Matthew 11.25 and then quotes 2 Corinthians 10.5, and every thought ought to be taken captive to the obedience of Christ. Yeah, that's helpful. I'm glad you pointed that out. Apart from that basic definition, he doesn't engage other philosophers per se, but I think the the presence of that basic statement signals in, some it, awareness. It certainly signals the transitional age in which he's living and working. I mean, he is a, a high orthodox thinker, and so falls into broadly the age of reason. And so there are different philosophical movements on the rise. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Descartes died in 1650, and Descartes marks a turning point. That's right. And by the time you get to the end of the 17th century, you're facing thinkers like Christian Wolff. And Spinoza. Spinoza. So there's a turn to reason outside of the Christian circles in the European universities, academies, that poses a pretty significant challenge. And one of the things the reformer having to say is, on the one hand, we're not captive to reason, and yet we're not unreasonable. And that can be a challenging plank, if you will, to walk in the midst of these currents, because on the one hand, the people who are elevating reason and saying, well, if my net can't catch it, it's not a butterfly. My mind is autonomous. You know, my intellect is the primary authority for faith and life. And on the other hand, there are 
people who are saying, well, you know, reason is not to be used or trusted at all. It doesn't have any authority. In fact, we want to sort of sublimate it and we want to search for an immediate uh, sort of encounter with the risen Christ and skip, in a sense, bypass reason altogether. And then you've got Lutherans accusing the Reformed of putting reason over Scripture. And, yeah, that's right. And then you have Roman Catholic critics challenging us on the authority of Scripture and the authority of reason. And so he's having to try to articulate in a very concise way, yeah, no, there is a place for reason, but it's subordinate to Scripture. One of the things that strikes me as a guy who became Reformed in the Vantillian world is his invocation here of 2 Corinthians 10.5, because that's just the way Vantill would use 2 Corinthians 10.5. Not to say that he was reading Heidegger, but he's an heir to maybe this use of the text. Yeah, I think you make a number of helpful points there. I, One I, of the reasons I, why— I try to do that well, from that... time to time. <laughs> yeah, carry on. I'm sorry. Intentionally or otherwise, no. One of the things that I'm interested in in helping contemporary or modern scholars think about is the way in which this particular text has been misunderstood or could be misunderstood because it is a collection of short, concise definitions. And the temptation in modern scholarship has been to suggest that this is an example of Heidegger's rationalism. The suggestion is that Heidegger belongs to a rationalist age that reduces theology to basic propositions, and it's a kind of cold yeah, this is approach an to theology. This is, a, this is an allegation that's made. And because of the nature of Heidegger's text, it has been misunderstood that way. My point is that Heidegger is really not engaged nor being influenced by the rationalism of his day, that he's actually just engaged in a Renaissance humanist model of pedagogy, which is to provide elaborate statements, abridgments of those statements, and then abridgments of the abridgments just for the sake of learning and for education. You know, the example I'd give, your kids are grown and raised and aren't doing their homework at home anymore. But uh, imagine going into your son or daughter's bedroom to check in on their homework and you find on their desk their carefully prepared notebook that they've produced based on lecture notes from the teacher and then reading of the textbook. And so they've prepared this careful notebook filled with material. And then next to it is a sheet of paper where they are producing and creating a study guide based on their extensive notes from the notebook. And then next to that, you can find flashcards based on the study guide that they've been working on. That's what you have with these three volumes of Heidegger. Now, imagine if a parent walks in and picks up the flashcards and looks on the back and says, why have you reduced you know, Hemingway's novel in your literature exam to, <laughs> to 25 one-sentence definitions? How cold and rationalist of you. It's just a misunderstanding of the genre. Heidegger, with this text that Casey's translated, is as light a set of flashcards. These are basic definitions that you're meant to commit to memory, not as an end in itself, but as a way to be better able to read more elaborate, more sophisticated theology at the next level. And there were writers in this period or about this period who maybe were more influenced by the rationalism that is developing in Europe at the time. I think of, for example, Herman Venema, not to say he's a full out rationalist, but he may have been a little more sympathetic in some ways to Descartes and others. But I, I think as I was reading Heidegger again and again, you know, working on this text with Casey, it struck me that he is a little bit like Pictet. He wants to signal to the world in some ways, hey, we're aware of what's happening. We understand the questions. We're still orthodox, but we're not stupid. 
Right. We're not being thoughtless about this. He uh, says in the next section, nevertheless, faith and revelation do not tear down right reason, even remaining in the sinner, but rather they perfect it, which is interesting. That language has some antecedents in the medieval period, for it is also not dissonant whether God for God or a truth for truth, because God is not yes and no, Second Corinthians one eighteen. He is, quote, unable to lie, Titus one two, and he, quote, revealed, close quote, what even can be known about God naturally. And he cites Romans one nineteen. And so it's interesting that he's addressing these questions basically by making a, a statement and then giving a series of passages, quoting the passages and giving the citations that let the student know look, this is what we think, and here are some passages from Scripture that have influenced why we say what we say. Yeah, and that could be misunderstood as proof texting, but that's not wasn't Heidegger's point. It was merely to give you the passages, and in the next two volumes, one could find the commentary and elaboration of those passages. Did the book surprise you at all? Did, was there anything he said? I mean, you were surprised by the character a little bit, but was there anything that he said theologically that surprised you? No, it struck me as fairly standard. There are a number of, I mean, there are 28 loci or topics or commonplaces in the book, and most of them are standard, beginning with scripture, with God, God's attributes, triune nature, God's works, creation, providence, angels, sin, the law, Christology, with the full elaboration of Reformed Christology in terms of Christ's person, his states of humiliation and exaltation, the three offices of Christ as prophet, priest, and king, and then a number of loci dealing with the ordo salutis, uh, calling justification. Which is what, for the listener? What is the ordo salutis? Calling, justification, sanctification, glorification. These are some of the topics that he takes up, along with a number of things related to ecclesiology. The other headings, which are not unique to Heidegger, but receive maybe different nuance or have a refined quality to them, deal with the Reformed Covenant theology. And I think it's in Heidegger in no way departs from the broad consensus of the Reformed tradition, but there are some maybe unique areas of emphasis in relation to his dealing with periods of redemptive history, for example, which strikes him as more Coxean than otherwise, and you could probably help our readers understand more of what's at stake there. So, you're thinking about seminary, but you're asking yourself, where will I live in Escondido? Westminster Seminary, California has good news. We've completed Westminster Village, a beautiful new place for you to live on campus. Open now, Westminster Village features eight residential buildings, 64 apartments including one, two, and three-bedroom units, and a commons where seminary families can fellowship together. Here's Joel Kim, president of Westminster Seminary, California, on the benefits of Westminster Village. Escondido is a beautiful place in which to live, but students wonder if they can actually afford it. Our goal is to benefit the students by providing a beautiful but affordable place to live on campus. In addition, we believe that learning happens not only in the classroom, but also by living together in community. Just as lifelong learning begins in the classroom, so lifelong relationships will begin in our new residential village. For more information, call toll-free 888-480-8474. That's 888-480-8474. Or visit us online at wscal.edu. That's wscal.edu. And ask us about our new residential village. wscal.edu. 888-480-8474. 
800-242-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. It's interesting, Locust 9 is on the Covenant of Works. Now, again, this is a handbook of a handbook, or a summary of a summary. And so this he treats as absolutely basic. This is the stuff you need to know at the get-go at the end of the 17th century. And so under Locust 9, he has a heading, subsection 1, the covenant of God with man. And he characterizes the covenant in terms of friendship, which is actually fairly common in the 17th century. And that is the language that Coxeus used. I think you find it in Witsius and others. So it's not unique to him. So God entered into a friendly relationship. He says God peculiarly or specially deemed man worthy of his friendship, for he is the king and father of man. And he called the same to covenant, offering his closer communion and more excellent goods. But the covenant of God is that pact, and here's his definition of covenant. The covenant of God is that pact with man, whereby God, from the eminence that he has, by law and singular goodness, makes an agreement on a certain condition for eternal life and seals the same with certain signs and pledges. So that's interesting. So he has a generic definition of covenant that could work for the covenant of works or for the covenant of grace. The outcome is eternal fellowship with God. The conditions are different. The condition of the covenant of works is obedience. The condition of the covenant of grace is faith, and it's a God-supplied covenant or a condition in that case. And then he says that there are seals and signs as pledges. So those are sacraments. There were sacraments of the covenant of works and sacraments of the covenant of grace. And so he gives a little argument for the existence of the covenant generally and then goes on to talk about the covenant of works. And he goes into it, not in huge detail, but you could certainly get the basics. Uh, Yeah, enough to get the basics and enough, as you say, to have the point be pressed home that this is important for but this is basic progress and study this is how you read the bible and let's begin here to make you a better interpreter and reader of scripture and you have to know this you have to understand this in order to understand scripture this is taken as sort of basic biblical theology i think that's interesting that by the end of the 17th century this is basic stuff one of the things that strikes me about that is that here we are now you know i was going to say at the end of the 20th century but into the 21st century and it's still considered now in our time somewhat controversial to say that the covenant of works is basic never mind the fact that the westminster standards repeat it you know multiple times in the confession and in the larger catechism. It certainly represents where the confessional tradition is going. I think that's true. I would be careful not to exaggerate the point because when he was tasked with drafting the formula consensus, there was a lot of pushback against having Heidegger do it because he was Coxian. And I didn't read enough. I don't have any sense of you know how strong that opposition was. But something about right the Coxian tradition, as we know, wasn't exactly – just standard, totally acceptable stuff. Well, yeah, Coxeus on the covenant of works wasn't controversial. Where he was particularly controversial was his view of the Sabbath. And he so identified the Sabbath with the history of redemption, and particularly with the Mosaic Epoch, that in a sense, the Sabbath as a creational institution got swallowed up. And of course, that has happened. Yeah, that's helpful. Probably since Coxeus, that's something one sees in the modern period. I have seen it. But it's true that he has a debt to Coxeus 
and he shares with him a kind of passion for the covenant of works, which I think fairly we could say is maybe a tad stronger in the Coxeans than maybe in others. But it's a basic doctrine for Witsius. It's a basic doctrine for a brockle. It's a basic doctrine for Turretin. And I think what it suggests is... Owen, and we could go on and on. We could. Because of the revival of debates about the imputation of Adam's sin, for example, in France at the time, I think... What was the circumstances of those? The Amaraldian controversy, the controversies associated with the school or academy in Samoa, France, that you know, began in a traditional Orthodox manner and then became increasingly controversial. It went sideways, I would say. Yeah, it went sideways until it was finally shut down, not for theological reasons, but with the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, which we don't need to go into, but... <laughs> That's fine. And so I think it represents the placing of that systematic theological debate or discussion in its full biblical context. In other words, the covenant of works as the larger redemptive historical context for discussions about the imputation of Adam's sin and what exactly happened in the garden. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So if someone wanted to get familiar with late 17th century Reformed theology as it was coming to expression, this would be a reasonably good window. And again, oh, this, absolutely. Is, this is the only thing of Heidegger's that's ever been translated into English. Yeah, as I said, I mean, Heidegger was involved in controversies of his day. He was a man of his times, like all of us are. And yet this particular text was meant to be a, a teaching tool to give us a way into the standard basic material of Reformed theology in the 17th century. And because it's so grounded in scripture with so many passages and references, it's helpful for us today. We can learn not just about our own tradition, but how to be better readers of scripture. And you will learn the gospel from this text. Don't you think that's right? I mean, he's yeah. very, very clear about uh, law, about, gospel, about, justification, yeah. and all within a redemptive historical context, the unfolding of God's plan of salvation. He has 13 subsections on the covenant of works. See, that would be an example where I think it's nothing he says there is unusual, but that kind of attention in a summary of a summary, I think, indicates that it's he, really important to him. It's really important to him. Yeah. And he might have had a point, right? He has to combine other loci in order to make room. <laughs> That's right. That's interesting. See, one of the assignments I give to my students in the Reformed Confessions class at the end of their program is they have to write a thousand-word statement of faith. I assign them that so that they will learn how to set priorities and learn how to choose words very carefully. And my theory is that there are two kinds of people that operate vehicles, those who know how to work on them, fix them, and those who simply drive them. And if you know how to work on them and you understand how they work, you have one relationship to the car. If you just drive it, you have another relationship. I remember trying to explain, you know, combustion to my mother. I said, well, mom, you know, as she was driving, that there are little tiny explosions going on. And she said, I don't want to know that. <laughs> so I think some people are like that with the Reformed Confessions. They've never gotten under the hood. So I think it's interesting that- Well, this, uh, is, this is a nuts and bolts text. Yeah. This is a way to get under the hood. Just kind of see how Reformed theology came to be, came to expression, how it works. Yep, and to flip through the flashcards and understand. And get uh, the basics. So the where I was going with all that is that here we are now in 2019, and, you know, after BART, 
it's been much harder to talk about the covenant of works. Through most of the 20th century, if you look through Orthodox Reformed theologies, you don't see much talk about the covenant of works. And then by the time you get to the middle of the 20th century and beyond, you get people now arguing against the covenant of works. And it's fairly common for people to take exception to that part of the Westminster Standards. Which I know you'll agree with this is indicates a confusion about law and gospel. So what came first, confusion about law and gospel, and then a confusion about the covenant of works, covenant of grace, or vice versa, sort of a chicken and the egg question? But it is suggestive that he's so clear about that. And as I say, on sin and grace and justification and salvation as the act and work of God's grace. And on the sacraments here, I'm just sort of paging through my copy here before me. You know, when he talks about the covenant of grace in the next locus, right? This would be locus 11. You know, almost immediately he turns to the mediator, which of course gets him to Christ. And so there is a kind of Christ. We're not supposed to say Christ-centeredness anymore. At least some have criticized that way of talking. But Christ obviously plays a central role in his theology. (laughs) This isn't dry academic stuff. I don't want to get you off your soapbox. That was great. If I could give you two thumbs up, I would would do that, but it it doesn't work for radio. All right. So um, we should turn this into a video cast. What do you call this? Well, we're going to – A video blog? Yeah, we're going to split this into two episodes, so that will be good. So after you spent some time looking at Heidegger and thinking about his life and trying to summarize it for the reader, this is all from your introduction to Heidegger and to this volume. What did Heidegger do particularly well. What I appreciated was the enduring legacy of the Renaissance and of humanist pedagogy all the way into, you know, the very end of the 17th century. I didn't expect it to have that kind of grasp or grip on reformed education that much, you know, after Erasmus in the 1530s. And so I was impressed by that. I think that's what was one of the strengths of the reformed tradition going into the high orthodox era was the enduring humanist legacy. And by that, I mean two things, really the enduring legacy of attention to words, to philology, to Greek and Hebrew texts, the best ways to understand and translate Greek and Hebrew texts. That's the first thing. The other thing is, again, the nature of this kind of textbook, a summary of a summary, of having a long-running commentary on the scripture taken down in one notebook, and then in your next notebook, sort of going through that material again and simply reorganizing it under headings. So the serial nature of the first notebook is then translated into a topical arrangement. And that's why there are headings. That's why there are loci or commonplaces. That's a humanist pedagogy. And then to produce a summary of even that topical arrangement in terms of an index, table of contents, basic definitions, that kind of thing is straight out of the late 15th century. And it produces striking clarity, doesn't it? It's useful for training students. Yeah. So the reader will be encouraged, you know, as you uh, work through this. I'm just, for example, looking at a section here on the covenant of grace where there's a lot of contemporary confusion relative to conditions. Walk into a room of Reformed people and ask them, are there conditions in the covenant of grace? And you'll half the room will say, absolutely not. The covenant of grace is completely unconditional. And the other half of the room will say, there certainly are conditions in the covenant of grace. And some of them will talk about it as if suddenly the covenant of grace is now the covenant of works. Now that you're in, you have to meet these conditions to stay in. And uh, here, if you 
and I won't go through it, but if you, if you were to look at what Heidegger here says at the end of the 17th century, he gets it right that the covenant of grace is fundamentally unconditional relative to us, but it comes to us as we receive it with what I like to call consequent conditions. And he lays this out. There are stipulations and it's all he very clear. He explains it clearly and succinctly. So what first struck me is odd about the text, namely it's kind of stripped down entirely without frills quality first struck me as odd. But now upon reading and thinking about it, that's one of the things that I really enjoy and appreciate about the text. The enjoyment one can get out of this translation by Casey is the satisfaction one can get when you have a question and you turn to a dictionary and you don't have to read 25 pages of a detailed background. You can just check what's the definition. This is more Webster's than the Oxford Dictionary, yeah. English Dictionary, yeah, it's the a, OED. In our you know age of Wikipedia, which isn't always the most reliable source, this is a reliable <laughs> version of Wikipedia. So yeah. probably the analogy isn't very good there. Yeah, no. Uh, one, one, but this two, is a, a, a text that you can consult quickly to either learn for the first time or be reminded of the basic definitions of theology. And it's useful for consulting in that way. And if you approach it in that way, you'll enjoy the book a great deal. We've been talking with Brian Glomsrud, Associate Professor of Historical Theology at Westminster Seminary, California. We've been talking about this new edition to come out in September of 2019, Lord willing, of a little book by... J.H. Heidegger, published in 1697. This is the first ever English translation, and the title is Concise Marrow of Christian Theology. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.